It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 115, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Susan and Harley Soltis of Bow Hill Blueberries raise five acres of highbush blueberries on the northern edge of the Skagit River Valley in western Washington. Susan and Harley bought the oldest blueberry farm in Skagit County in 2011, transitioned the farm to organic, and launched a new line of value-added products along with their fresh and frozen berries. Harley shares the details of organic blueberry production, from weed control and management of mummyberry and spotted wing drosophila, through the GAP-certified harvest that provides access to institutional markets. Bow Hill's blueberry bushes were mostly planted in the 1940s, which provides a great marketing opportunity, heirlooms, but also presents challenges when it comes to keeping the harvest crew happy. And so Harley and Susan both dig deep into how they work with their labor crew to maximize the harvest and keep worker satisfaction high. Susan walks us through how they market their fresh and frozen berries to institutions, including Microsoft's Food Service and the Seattle Seahawks, as well as how they created their unique line of value-added products. Now they've established a differentiated presence in the marketplace, even though Washington State is the United States' largest producer of organic blueberries. We also discuss how Bow Hill has developed and enhanced their UPIC market and on-farm sales, as well as how they've turned Purslane to their advantage. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by CoolBot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Harley and Susan Soltis, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi there. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us today. So I'd like to have you guys set the stage for us there at Bow Hill Blueberries uh, on the northern edge of the Skagit River Valley, where you guys are farming, how much you're growing, what crops you're doing. I think it's in the name, the blueberries, and, and how you're selling just kind of as a, as a framework to guide the conversation going forwards. Uh, so in 2011, Harley and I bought the oldest blueberry farm in Skagit Valley. It had been with one family since uh, the 30s, and uh, we acquired it because the parents had passed away, and they had four sons, and the sons didn't, didn't want to farm, so they sold it. They'd moved on to high-tech careers and things like that. And what we wanted to do was really to um, breathe life back into this uh, historic farm. It'd been in the valley and people had picked there for years and years and um, it was just really known. But as the parents got older, things, um, you know, weren't as active. So we bought it and we immediately took it organic. And um, that was our first order of business. And Harley, do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. So it's the farm itself by today's standards is small. Um, we have over a little over five acres of fruit on a six acre site. Um, today, blueberry farms are 40, 80, or 200 acres um, and, you know, do machine picking and efficiency. Um, but this is the size farm it was that, uh, that farms were in the 40s when these blueberries were planted. So our plants, our five acres of blueberries, were mostly planted in 1947. So it's our 70th year. The plants are 70 years old. Um, we have heirloom varieties that 
date back to the 1920s. So we have a gift of some fruit that's not available anymore or that's certainly not grown commercially anymore. Um, and we, again, like Susan said, we transitioned to organic from day one. Um, it's the only way we would do things. And um, so we that took, that was a three-year process that we did during our first three years. But that's kind of the overview of our the farm site. And, and then because we started with fruit, so we, um, we didn't have to wait for plants to mature, or, you know, grow or anything like that. The first year, what we decided we would do is open up the U-Pick again. And people in the community were really excited about that. And how we promoted it was that you could have a farm experience and um, eat fresh fruit right off the bush. We weren't going to say, don't eat, don't eat blueberries while you U-Pick because we know that's going to happen anyway. So we wanted to say, go ahead, have a good time and enjoy your experience and really get to know what this fresh food is like. So we had you pick, and then um, we decided that institutional customers might be a good way for us to go. So that's what we started in our first institutional customer was the University of Washington Medical Center. And so we started delivering to them. So that was that was year one. Yeah, Susan created a thing called a grazing pass, um, which people could pay $5 and they got like a big backstage pass and we still do it today where you go out in the field and you can eat all you want. You have like an all you can eat <laughs> organic blueberry buffet. Um, and that was like something very different than any other farms were doing. And we've got a lot of attention because of the grazing pass that we still use. And we integrate it with our UPIC now where you only put, you can eat all you want and then you just pay for what you put in your bucket when you leave. I love that. Yeah, so it works really well for us to help support that program because we have to have people there, you know, monitoring and handing out buckets and weighing and all of that kind of thing in our store. Um, so they pay, it's like an entrance fee, they pay $5. And then if they pick 10 pounds, if they put 10 pounds in their bucket, then they get their $5 back. So it really promotes picking as well. So, you know, go ahead and eat, but if you put them, uh, you know, enough berries in your bucket, you'll, you'll have gotten a free meal. And people love that. That really promotes picking. So it works, it works really well for us. Right. And in the first few years we were here, we were mainly fresh. We had, our goal was fresh fruit, either sold as retail, wholesale, flats and pints, and the U-Pick. Um, and that was a significant amount of our fruit early on. Um, and we can get into some of the growing things later where we had a reduced uh, harvest the first few years because we did some heavy catch-up pruning. Um, and then over the years, we've shifted that um, to help create a sustainable business plan for five acre small farm to much more value-added production so that that fresh sales diminishes every year as our frozen plus value-added marketing grows every year. So the other thing to note with this, with this historic farm is that uh, a processing a facility came with it. So Harley was able, he saw that and thought that he could, you know, that would get us a leg up. And um, he put in an organic um, processing kitchen, if you want to talk about that at all, Harley. Yeah, in addition to the gift of mature plants of varieties that are incredible, we did get a already a licensed food processing building because the farm previously had processed fruit. They had a small co-op here that packed uh, raw fruit for freezing for a cooperative of small farms. There were other five to 10 acre smaller blueberry farms. So that facility was already here. And we saw that, we knew the value of the farm, we knew that there was potential for cooking, processing, deduced value added processing on this farm rather than just plants and no infrastructure. 
So we took, made use of that. We might not have gone that direction had that facility not already been there. Now, when you guys bought the farm in 2011, did you have experience growing blueberries and an experience with processing kitchens or, or the, the culinary field? Not in blueberries. So we had a small farm in Kingston. We were raising pasture poultry and we did um, processing there, small scale processing. And we, and I had been a photographer at Seattle Times for a lot of years. So I'd photographed food a lot. And I had recently done, just done a book called The Chefs on the Farm, which was a whole, uh, a book about small scale farming, processing, you know, being local. And so we had done a lot of research uh, in farming. We had, we were doing uh, pasture poultry. And when I saw the processing building, I thought processing building, that could be my scaled up chicken processing facility and that we would rent out the blueberries to someone else who knew blueberries. That was our first thought. So we called around different farms, larger farms in the area to see if they wanted to lease the blueberries and take them organic. And we had people who, yes, they wanted to lease the blueberries, but no, they didn't want to take them organic because an organic lease is kind of complicated because it's such a long-term view when you're doing organic. So we knew then that we had to take over the blueberries ourselves if we want them to be organic and we live, our house is in the middle of the field. So in addition to believing in organic uh, farming and always had done things that way, it, I mean, it's doubled by the fact that you live in the middle of where the production, you know, where spring and all that would be. So we started on sort of graduate school for blueberry farming and we got a lot of help from the other historically organic farms. Cascadian was one of them, which was one of the first organic blueberry farms in the country. And also the organic manager at one of the other larger farms in the valley sought us out when they heard we were going organic and offered help. So we got a lot of training from other farms with a lot of experience. And then I, I go to every you know workshop that I can go to that has anything to do with organics and, and blueberries. And so now we're, we've become the farm that other new organic farmers come to to find out what are we doing here. We've been successful at raising production. We've been ex- successful at keeping disease and pests down. Um, we're fairly innovative in some of the things we try in the field um, and, you know, risk-taking and do all kinds of things out there. And so we've become a farm now that can pass on that information to the other people that want to do the same transition. Tell me about the transitioning process because, you know, so there in 2011 and you've got all these perennial plants. What did it take to transition that land to organic? Well, the legality of it is that it takes three years from the last application of a prohibited product in organics um, to get organic certification. So the, we started the clock right when we got here, and we went through the Washington State Department of Agriculture has a certified transitional program. Not all states offer that. Not all certifiers offer that. So that w- with one year and one day after we start the full organic practice, we were officially certified transitional and we, and it's a logo and it's a label and it's a certification that, that helps locally. People know what that means at the co-ops and in Washington state and what it, what it tells a buyer and an eater is that you're fully organic in your practices, but you're not yet certified. Um, and so we, the, in the transitional program with the Washington state department of ag, you actually go through inspections and all the paperwork and you pay a fee. So you're doing everything as if you're certified organic. And the real advantage is at the end of your three, three years, you're in the system. There's no surprise to actually mail you your, you know, right at your three year anniversary, you get your certificate, your full organic certificate. 
and you don't end up with a surprise like that you did something wrong during the process. So we went through the transitional program and then at the end of three years, so our first tar- our harvest in 2014 was our first full certified organic harvest. Did you guys have challenges with, with soils and, and pests during that transition period? We didn't have a lot of challenges that even the conventional farms don't have. In fact, we, we're more successful than most conventional farms in terms of the two main things that can cause really big problems in organic blueberry or organic fruit. And that's, uh, there's one fungus called a mummy berry, which can wipe out 80% of your fruit. And then nationally, there's a new fruit fly called the spotted wing drosophila that is affecting fruit in, you know, from cherries to blueberries, blackberries, everything, um, which has limited options in organic treatment. But through intense monitoring and being relentless and using those organic products that are available to us in a very timely, well thought out manner, we've maintained really good control of everything. So what does that timely, well-thought-out manner look like when you're dealing with a pest like spotted wing drosophila? Because that's one of those that gives me nightmares when I hear about it. Um, well, we, we put out 20 traps, 20 to 24 traps, monitoring traps throughout the field, which is a lot of traps for this size field. So we tra- monitor everything from the perimeter to the inner parts of the field. And those are little cups. They're actually Starbucks uh, clear coffee cups that you, when you go get an ice latte at Starbucks, they give you, and we put a, a bait in there, which is like a yeast sugar mixture. Then we log, we check those every time and change the bait material in there. And this is a monitoring bait, not really a killing or designed to kill, but to monitor when you start having high numbers of female spotted wing drosophila in the field. And so we go around every three days and check all 2024 traps and we plot those on a spreadsheet. And we're watching for that when that rise in female traps in the traps goes. And that tells us when to start using our organic sprays. And we use a couple of different fermented bacterial sprays that are on the market that are organic approved. And we do them at the right time of day. And we do them at the right interval spacings to get the maximum out of what you can control with them. It's really impossible. There's a lot of things you can do in in organic ag that doesn't require a chemical like an organic chemical through mechanical means and through cultural means, but stopping spottering softly is not one of them. So we do use organic sprays and we use them at the most optimum time of day and everything that we can. And how about with controlling for the mummy berry? So with disease control, mummy berry is just scary. And, you know, it comes from, it can come from other farms and blow in. There's a lot more mechanical things we do there. And one of the things is we apply a hundred cubic yards of mulch onto the plants per acre every year. So 100 cubic yards per acre per year. It's seven semi-trucks of mulch that we purchase. Um, and that the mulch, of course, does multiple things. It improves our organic matter in our soil. When we took over the farm, we had dangerously high, you know, high acidic levels. There was very little organic matter. Um, it was overhead irrigated, so we were losing a lot of water. Um, and by deeply mulching in the fall, uh, we cover the mummies, like if the, the mummies fall down, the, the blueberries mummify and they fall down the ground, they become the inoculant for next year. By burying those with deep compost, we prevent a lot of them from coming up and reinfecting the next year. In addition to building organic matter, building soil structure, retaining moisture and re, uh, minimizing weeds and adding all, it adds lots of nutrients to the soil. So there's like a five or six things we're getting out of this deep mulch. And one of the main things is the mummy berry control. 
The other thing we do is we pay our professional pickers to, if they find mummies when they're picking, uh, we give them pints of ice cream for every hundred mummies they bring to the <laughs> in a little cup. They get a pint of ice cream so that you're using sanitation. Some of the bigger farms will have vacuum systems and say that try and vacuum them up. But by just removing the inoculant and in, or preventing it, you know, or covering it, that's one of the things we do for mummy berry. And we've have, you know, we definitely are in the level of what a conventional farm using systemic fungicides does to control mummy. In terms of the outcomes that you're creating. In terms of the outcome, in terms of the number of infections we have, yeah. Let's back out a little bit here. Go go from we talked about some, a couple of really specific practices, but what does a year in the life of a blueberry farmer look like? Walk us through the calendar. Well, one of the things is when we look at the year life of a blueberry farm, all ours is a twelve month year because we're processing, and Sue's can talk about this. Is we're actually manufacturing from our frozen fruit all year round, so we don't get time off. <laughs> we don't we don't have a season and then we're off. Um, and then again, growing perennial plants, you're dealing with them, you know, even in the winter with pruning. But if we just started beginning at the last day of harvest, we start then, what does our year look like? Um, we start mulching as soon as we're waiting, basically after the last day of harvest for the first frost. We're sitting around and waiting. It's the slowest time to be in the field because we're waiting for the first frost so it knocks the leaves off. And once the leaves are off, we can start pruning and we will start mulching. So we, uh, you know, in October, before it gets too wet in our field, one of the things is we have a very wet site. We're uh, bordered by what used to be the Samish River is now Edison Slough. So we get too wet to do things in the middle part of the winter. So we spread our mulch right away while we get in the field and we start pruning and it takes about three months to get through our field pruning and we prune every plant every year. I was just going to say it's all hand pruned by just a couple of people. Then we might uh, apply some fall dormant sprays. We're not really that into it, but some of the traditional organic things like uh, Bordeaux mixture or lime sulfur just to clean up a little bit of disease. But our plants are so old and they have everything and they just tough it out because they've got huge root systems. Um, They're not small plants that are delicate. So we don't worry too much about a lot of the bacterial and fungal diseases that are just there because it's been there so long. Um, and then in terms of the field work, uh, in the spring, you start watching for bud break and green tip, which is when the buds start to swell, and that's going on right now. And we start treating for mummy berry, usually with like a lime sulfur type spray, some of the traditional things have been around for 100 years. And then we have some sort of homeopathic stimulants uh, that we use to treat the plant to help it fight off mummy berry uh, and fungus diseases and botrytises. And we're pretty much waiting to bring the bees in. As soon as the blossoms open, we have our own beehives and then we rent some hives and uh, we just sort of do what we can to enhance and facilitate pollination of the plants. Uh, We then start prepping for harvest. That's prepping all our packaging material, getting our crew together that'll help us harvest, um, start marketing. Yeah, we harvest for about eight weeks and we rotate through different varieties. We have four varieties and they kind of come in as waves depending on the summer, how the weather's going, whether they overlap or they're separated out. And we harvest for eight weeks. And during that time, we're packing fresh fruit. We're packing uh, frozen for freezing. And we're 
not as concentrated on our product production during that time because it's like all hands on deck. It's pretty much like an eight-week party. It's uh, sun up to sundown, harvesting, packing, getting ready for the next day, prepping, packaging. It's, it's an, a very exciting and a very fun time at the farm. Um, and then at the end of harvest, which can be August 20th, August 30th, Labor Day, maybe even mid-September, then we start over again. And how about on the processing side of things? The processing goes all year round then because we freeze our berries. We're able to do the production year round. So um, we do jam and sauce and marinade and frozen blueberries and pickled blueberries. We just won an award on that one. And um, juices are our new thing that we're really excited about. We cold press the berries to make a pure blueberry juice that has nothing added. Most um, blueberry juices have a grape added to it or apple juice or water and ours is full up. And so we like to say, take a shot or mix it. And then um, what we do once we're, uh, we juice the berries, there's this big cake that's left over, a berry skin. So we take that and we dry it and then we macerate that and create a a highly nutritious uh, blueberry powder. So that's so, oh, and we do dry blueberries as well. So that is going on um, year round in our kitchen, and we have one cook, and she's keeps uh, employed for about thirty hours a week, every week. And then we have uh, a person that helps me with the marketing, and the marketing is going on year round as well, as well as sales are happening year round with the frozen. That's our biggest. Um, that's the easiest to sell is frozen blueberries. So we take reservations on that, and then we are delivering year-round with the frozen. And then the value-added products we sell um, online, and we have a farm store. So we the farm store is open year-round because we do have employees, you know, on the farm year-round, so we can keep the store open. So that's happening. And then we sell the grocers, co-ops, uh, specialty shor- uh, stores, and that that keeps us really busy. <laughs> And then we do promotions and things like that. So I'm really interested in the process of freezing blueberries. I eat a lot of frozen blueberries. So how do you guys, I mean, I imagine you're not just packing them in gallon Ziploc bags and throwing them in the freezer, or are you? Or are we? We, <laughs> well, Pretty we much. pack them several different <laughs> ways. We pack them in pound and a half and three pound Ziploc bags, but they have a zipper on them. They're really nice. And um, so we pack and we freeze them. We have two, we've added equipment here so that we have two walk-in freezers. And we pre-freeze all the fruit here, and then it's moved off-site. We pre-freeze it here, and then move it off-frozen. And we pack it on-site off a little sorting conveyor belt into one-and-a-half-pound bags, three-pound bags, and then 24-pound boxes. And the 24-pound boxes would be for our own process. That's how we use process. And then the pound-and-a-half and three pounds are done in Ziplocs. And the, what's really nice about blueberries is they don't really have to be IQF or through, you know, individually quick frozen with um, expensive equipment. They're extremely durable. And when you pack them and freeze them, they stay loose like marbles. Uh, unlike, let's say, what a raspberry or strawberry would do where you need to sort of tray on a small scale. You would tray freeze them and then pack them. We just put them in the boxes and they stay loose, scoopable. So it's pretty lucky and that's how we do it. Do you wash the blueberries first? No, we don't wash berries. We sell them. We tell people they're they're unwashed, and um, but they're they've never touched the ground. So we're GAP, uh, USDA GAP food safety certified, which is uh, quite a bit of work for us, but it keeps everything clean and 
Um, so we're inspected every year, um, which is the highest level of you know USDA food safety rating you can get. And so our we have fruit that's never touched the ground. We have our pickers are using the highest sanitation techniques, and the whole process is you know as essentially the field is treated almost like commercial kitchen uh, food safety standards until it's all packed in the frozen. So we don't wash the fruit because then we'd have to wait to we'd have to have a way to dry it, which would be really complicate the whole process if we if we were to wash it first. When you talk about having a very sanitary harvest process. Tell me a little bit about how the harvest process works and, and what that sanitary process looks like on your farm. Um, the first, first thing we do is we have food safety training for all of our pickers so that they're aware. And uh, the picking crew that we have is a professional crew that's been doing this for 20 years in Washington. And they've been at larger farms, which have very intense food safety protocols because they're selling internationally or they're selling to the big, they're selling to the Costco's and to the Safeways and all that that are pretty demanding on food safety. Um, so the, the people that we hire come already food safety trained. Everyone in our building that's doing packing or working in our kitchen gets a food handler's license, so they're aware of food safety protocols. But one thing is we always use a clean new container. We never use a used container. Our harvest plastic lugs that we pick into in the field that we bring in are washed and sanitized every night, so nothing goes back out on the field that has not been washed and sanitized since it's last used. We never put containers on the ground. Um, we have a portable hand wash, hot water hand wash station that is always right at the picking area so that uh, the pickers would wash their hands during all the required, after a break, after going to the bathroom, anytime they feel like their hand was dirty. So that's all going on through the process from the field all the way in. So we don't do anything out in the fields really any different than what we would do inside the clean packing house. And with five acres of blueberries, I mean, I know what five acres of vegetables looks like. I, you know, I've seen five acres of carrots and, and five acres of broccoli. What, mm -hmm. how do blueberries compare? How many people do you guys have on your picking crew to keep everything harvested over that eight week period? Well, let's back up just a little bit and, and say that the first year we got the farm, um, after the heavy pruning, we harvested, I think it was 29,000 pounds of blueberries, and then incrementally it's gotten larger and larger, and in our fifth year, with all the um, organic practices, we got 73,000 pounds of blueberries. So that, you know, there's, depending on the amount of berries um, coming on, that uh, determines the size of the crew, but we have one field manager that's been with us since the beginning, and he's been in berries since he was 14 years old, and he brings his family. So we have a family that um, works with us every year and they're like our family and we're really fortunate to have them. They're, they're pros. And so we might pick with eight people at a low six to eight a day. And then at a peak would be 15 a day. And it all depends on how many varieties are, you know, are coming in and what we think we need to get in that day. And our pickers manage the field. We don't. So the first year, I would say, let's pick this row, let's pick that row. And then I started to realize that they have, they're out there with their hands in it, looking at it. I'm out there every day too, but they're really intimate with the plants and that they manage the picks. So we might say we need a thousand pounds picked this way today or 2,000 pounds picked this way today. And they find the rows where it's optimum 
to harvest that fruit, but at the same time maintain overpicking, like now let's say not overgrazing, so that that second and third wave of blueberries is protected. Right. And because a lot, you know, they're also paid by the pound, and so they're trying to maximize what they get, and they also take ownership of the field and what you what the farm itself needs because they want to be back next year. They're interested in the survivability of the farm. And so they're, they are maximizing the pounds that they can get out of the field by the way in which they harvest, like the rows that they pick, the rows that they let rest. Um, so they're, they're professional and highly skilled at managing the flow of fruit. We give them a goal and they manage how to make it. Right. So if we get a sale, like say to the, um, Microsoft bites are our berries and for their uh, food service program. And so I'll say we need a thousand pounds of berries on Monday in 10 pound flats and they'll go out and get it for us. And when you say you pay by the piece, what does that end up translating to? I mean, how much are berry pickers earning? Yeah. So we pay by the pound and it changes. So this is really interesting because when we started, we called all these people, how much do you pay? How do you pay? What do you pay? How do you pay? We never got any information. We had to totally, learn this. No one will talk about, let's say, what they're paying. And then we started to learn because it's irrelevant because our plants, first of all, are there's modern plants where a picker could go out and pick 800 pounds a day. Then there's our plants, which are heirloom varieties, which don't necessarily lend themselves well to hand picking. You know, the varieties, they develop plants that were easier to pick. They grew in clusters. We have a variety called Jersey, which is a very old commercial variety that's still around the country. Ours are so tall, we pick on, they pick on ladders. So they're picking on ladders, which slows things down. Then we have some heirloom varieties that are teeny tiny that are intensely slow to pick, kind of like a wild huckleberry. And so the price per pound is irrelevant, but we track them every hour and what they're making. We have like a new computerized scale that does this. And oftentimes they're making double to triple minimum wage when they're picking here. So when they're in a, we pay higher than most places, so we make sure that we keep people. We pay a bonus at the end of the year. A picker stays the whole year that goes back to their first one. And so there's many hours where they're making well in the $27 range or more. And then sometimes when it's really slow, they're making minimum wage or a little. What we use is a minimum wage, which is higher than the regular minimum wage. So we have a pretty high floor, which is the minimum that they can get. And our pickers are here for the season, so they know. When they go out and it's going to be one of the little varieties, they don't complain. They know it's going to be slower and they'll maybe they'll make less because they get to be here on the days when they're in the varieties that we have that pick really easy. So it's a situation where they trust us and we trust them to stay around and they trust that not every day is going to be slow because some of the days are going to be really good. So it's really all over the map what they can make and what it what it's what they're getting per pound. Basically. But the, and they also like that they're now in an organic field, so it's yeah. safer for them because a lot of them came from conventional farming, and there was issues there. With an eight-week picking period, what happens to your crew when the picking season's done? Are they are they off to other fruit crops that are in the region? Are they moving out of the area? How does that work for them? Well, all of our pickers are local, so there's no migrant workers, and we don't use the H-2A program, which is a the worker visa program. Um, that, so they're all local residents. We 
they'll start working before picking, let's say weeding or pruning or trellising. Anytime we have anything we can do, um, we hire the same people to do that. Um, and then there's pruning work afterwards and there's all weeding. And so, um, and there's in the valley, there's processing work in both potatoes and other fruits that the potatoes and that kind of thing goes year round. We have a huge tulip daffodil industry here that can go for a lot of the, you know, it goes through a lot of the year. So there's agricultural work. Yeah, and blackberries. So there's fruit that's before us, there's fruit that's after us. Um, blackberries comes after us. There's late blueberry farms that have later crops that they'll move on to after us. Um, but we get a commitment for them to stay till we're done. Because typically in picking, you'll have workers moving from farm to farm based on what they're paying per pound or when, where the lucrative stuff is. And blackberries is one of those things that pays really well. And our first couple of years before we started paying a bonus for people to stay the whole year, um, we would lose people the last two weeks because the blackberries were just more, it was better money. So now we have more, we, you know, we've just developed a good, really good relationship with everybody where they're, they know that they're here and we're committed to them and they're committed to us. Yes, we keep them busy. So if it's, rain, if it's raining on a harvest day, um, they will, if they want to work, they show up and they want to work, they, they'll weed since we can't pick. So we, we create work as well when we can if any there's any obstacle to picking. Right. A lot of the other farms just don't pick. They're just done. So the, yeah, those days. I guess that's one of the advantages of being an organic farm, right? The weeds are always growing. Yeah. I was, yeah, was going to say, yeah, with organic, there's always a lot more labor. There's a lot more going on that people can do. And we can always pack. Like if we know it's going to rain um, on a Wednesday, on Tuesday, we'll pick faster than we can quickly into lugs. And then everybody will come in on, the rainy day and we'll pack. We put it all in our cold storage and then we will do packing. We'll pack our frozen. We try and hold that off until it's going to be the rainy day. So our field crew that picks is also the crew that comes inside. Right. And that's the way they, they like it. We had tried to, we thought it would be more efficient to have a packing crew and a picking crew, but um, they want to make, Hey, well, the sun shines basically, or, or well, it's raining. So they, they want to stay and um, do the processing as well. So it might be a little bit less efficient for us, but if it keeps our crew happy, that's the way we want to do it. You mentioned that you've got blueberry plants that are 70 years old, and you've got blueberry plants that are tall enough that you have to pick them with a ladder. How long will your blueberry plants last? Is this something, are you guys having to plant replacements? Is there a time when you're going to start to have to rotate in replacement stock? Well, we haven't had any plants die since we've been here, so we haven't had to replace them for that. And we, it's hard for me to think about taking a plant out and then waiting five years for the next fruit. So we have figured out what this, these varieties wanted to be and created those products that, and we can talk about this with the processing. Each one of these berries has real characteristics. We took over the farm and we were like everybody. We thought a blueberry is a blueberry. And we learned different as we started to create the products and look at how things froze and how, you know, Sue can talk about all this is that in, in terms of the product development. So we're not changing anything in terms of the plants. In terms of the longevity, this is last year, 2016, was the 100th anniversary of cultivated highbush blueberries. And the first of those varieties, they, were, they started in New Jersey. That's where highbush blueberries started, which is the variety we have. And the first variety was called the Ruble. 
we have an acre of rubles. We love them. They're an amazing fruit. They're the highest antioxidant. They're tiny. And those plants, which started in, 20, in 1916 in New Jersey, are still there. So those plants are 100 years old. So the heirloom varieties that they worked on in the teens and the 19-teens and the 1920s, those plants still exist, you know, in 100 years. So the heirloom varieties will last 100 years. I don't know anything about how long modern plants, if they have a, a lifespan that, that's limited. Tell me a little bit about your weed control practices. Is it, is it just guys out there with hoes? No, we mulch deeply is our first thing. So we try and cover as much as we can. Um, then I bought a, a thing called a blueberry cultivator. It was the first one that came to Washington State from a place in Pennsylvania that created, it was a, it's a mechanical spider weeder um, where they adapted littlest and uh, spider weeders heads in a way that works really well with blueberries, particularly mounded composted blueberries where they run at an angle and they run on both sides with um, a way to adjust your width as you go down the row. So we do mechanical weeding with this device. Um, and a lot of farms have come and seen it and starting to, you know, they're adding it, whether they're even the conventional or organic. And it does everything but between the plants. So it does the sides of the plants, basically, between the grass row. We, we grow grass in the middle between the rows, and then we mulch deeply around the plant. And then we run this cultivator down, which gets a lot of the weeds, and then we hand weed between the plants. And with the deep mulch, it's not a lot of work, but we do have to go through the field probably twice a year hand weeding between the plants. Um, we don't use any, there is organic uh, weed control that you can spray, but it's pretty expensive and fairly ineffective. So we don't do that. Are you mostly dealing with perennial weeds in your blueberries or is it a mixture? It's a mixture. Now, one of the exciting things is we have weeds that we promote. So we have in one, a significant amount of our field one year in our compost came with lots of purslane growing in it. And purslane, as you may know, is one of the most nutritious green vegetables in the world. In the United States, it's a, considered a weed, but the rest of the world doesn't really consider it a weed. And so we, when we weed, we promote the growth of purslane, and it helps make a pretty dense mat in the summer that chokes out a lot of the other weeds. And then we do, we have certified organic status on our purslane as a forged crop, and we do harvest and sell purslane to restaurants and co-ops. So that's an annual weed that we don't consider a weed that we're using as a crop. And so it also helps in our organic system plan. You're required to have some diversity and it's hard in a perennial field to have rotations and diversity, but that's one of our sort of diverse things that we do in there. Um, but most of our weeds are annual weeds. They're like annual grasses, thistles, which is kind of a biennial uh, horsetail in the wetter areas. That's the biggest thing. A little bit of chickweed, which we don't consider a problem. And then our sunflowers. Butter that was Susan's project she can tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I wanted it because people visit the farm and I wanted it to, you know, have a nice appearance. And I wanted to plant sunflowers at the head of each row just because I thought that'd be pretty. And uh, through the years, they have just receded and receded. And now it's just crazy. It looks like we're a sunflower farm often. So we, we actually have to weed them out um, to you know, so they don't choke out the blueberries. <laughs> right. So from a distance, when you drive up, you see five acres of sunflowers. So there's thousands of them. They, whatever nutritionally we do for blueberries must really work for sunflowers because <laughs> they just grow. <laughs> um, and the birds, the, and our cult between our cultivator and the birds, 
harvesting the seed, they get thrown all over. So now in order to like find the blueberry plants, we do go through and hack out thousands of the sunflowers right before harvest. And then we also sell those sunflowers as a U-pick item so people can U-pick. And it's kind of nice because they're they start to blossom late in the blueberry season. And then in the fall, when we're done with blueberries, people can still come and pick sunflowers. And they're also, the WSDA gave us certified organic status on the sunflowers. There's certified organic seed in them. That's great. I love that. With that, we're going to stop here, get a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Harley and Susan Soltis from Bow Hill Blueberries in the Skagit River Valley of Washington State. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company have a practical understanding of the challenges that organic growers face, and they combine that with a comprehensive understanding of soil and plant science and an intuitive comprehension that turns the science of compost and potting soil into an art form. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont compost soil potting soils are not glitzy and they're not glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com The podcast is also brought to you by Store It Cold's Coolbot. Way back in 2000, the year I started Rock Spring Farm, the manager of the local food co-op complained that the lettuce from local producers lasted for days in her cooler, while the lettuce from California lasted for weeks. So what's that about 2,000 miles fresher? I later found out that none of the local growers at that time had a walk-in cooler. 17 years later, this is still the number one complaint I hear from produce buyers. You have to get your produce cold. The difference between then and now is that now there's CoolBot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit, saving up to 83% in upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electricity bills compared to conventional cooling units. Use the code FDF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge. Storeitcold.com. All right, and we're back with Harley and Susan Soltis from Bow Hill Blueberries. So, Susan, we've talked a lot or Harley's talked a lot about growing the blueberries and the purslane and the sunflowers. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you guys go about the processing and the, and the marketing side of things? Yeah. So as Harley mentioned, we have four different varieties that have um, all different properties to them. You know, like you said, we didn't know a blueberry from a blueberry when we, when we got the farm, but as the season went on and we tasted them, we realized that they all, they're like grapes. There's different varieties and there's different uses for them. So we developed products that would um, highlight, you know, the, the benefits of each of them. So in the first year, we started with jam because that was, that was easy and obvious. And then we had these tiny berries. And so we tried um, pickling them. Harley had been to a dinner, a fancy dinner that had salmon with pickled blueberries on them. And we thought, well, let's give this a try. And we were super fortunate uh, that these heirloom berries are tiny with a thick skin. So we're able to pickle them where um, other varieties, newer varieties, you can do a fresh pickle, but if you try to actually can it, process it, it just turns to mush and it's really pretty awful. So, um, so we have pickled blueberries. And um, on the second year, I went back to the, the ruble variety to try it. 
And the second year, so it's, it's also like grapes in that there's vintages and there's each year is just slightly different. So the second year I went back to pickle the berries and it didn't work. And so I didn't know what we were going to do. I tried and tried and I had vats of pickled blueberries that were like not, not happening. You know, it was just the, the texture wasn't right. And so then we tried our, another of our heirloom varieties and thank goodness it worked. So we've, um, we use our other Stanley blueberry for those pickled blueberries. And then from, from that, mis- I guess you would call that a mistake, uh, these vats of pickled blueberries that weren't really working, we developed a blueberry marinade, so we just uh, blended them up. And, and um, it tastes different than the pickled blueberry because there's more vinegar involved in it. But um, so that was how we utilized what, what had gone wrong there. And then we also... Um, our jam, I like a real low sugar uh, jam, which I guess isn't really officially a jam. It's more of a spread or a preserve, uh, but it's a little runny. So uh, we had to add a little bit more sugar to make our jam a jam. And then our, our failed jam is what we started calling it at the beginning is, uh, what what do we call it, Harley? Um, we call it jam. Oh, jam. We want to call it jam gone wrong. Jam <laughs> gone wrong, but we figured that was a little negative. So, um, so it, that became our sauce, and I just absolutely love it. It's like I think it's our, it's my personal favorite of the products that we make. Uh, and then um, again, as this this last year, we've decided that uh, making a blueberry juice is really that's Harley's project. I'll, I'll let him talk about it, but that was nobody else is doing it. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to be able to offer this pure, pure, highly nutritious blueberry juice. And so um, we've started making that. But it's been trial and error. Basically, that's that's how you do it. You know, you um, I don't come from a culinary background. I like good food. I like to eat. But and I know I feel like I know what tastes good, but I'm not really a chef. So I brought in Harley's cousin, actually, who is just a home cook, a really good home cook. And she helped develop the recipes for our pickled blueberry and our, and our jam. That's where the, the recipes were born. And now we just produce them year round. And the, you know, the marketing of them, of the fresh blueberry, um, we go back to the same customers every year. We try to sell as much off the farm as we can fresh. But then we have um, Microsoft and some Amazon uh, clients, the dining facilities and the dining facility at uh, UW Medical Center and a a variety of other um, markets. And we do a little bit of farmer's market, but not not really in our area. There's so many blueberries at the time when ours are happening that uh, the competition is too great. So we actually don't go to the farmer's market with our blueberries because um, a lot of the mixed vegetable farmers also have some berries and they've already got their, their clients, right? They've already got their steady customers. And so it's harder for us to compete in the berry market at the, at the farmer's market. So we really kind of bow out of that and just go with our process um, at, before and after the season. So that, that's what works for, for us. And then the frozen blueberries, we take reservations for those. And our biggest um, customer, or well, not our biggest, our most famous customer for the uh, frozen blueberries is the Seattle Seahawks. And they have a smoothie bar, a self-serve smoothie bar where the players get to make their smoothies and they like blueberries. So that's pretty cool. So 
we sell to them. And we sell through the Puget Sound Food Hub. That's one of our distributors. And I'm, I'm learning along the way uh, about distribution. You know, at first I was shocked by how much it is the middleman would take, right? And that's what you hear growing up, that the middleman is, is the bad guy. Well, somebody's got to deliver the stuff, and it's not for free. And so now I've realized that they kind of earn that 20% they take. And even though it's a big bite, um, my time is valuable too. And so is Harley's and, and wear and tear on our vehicles and, you know, just days on the road. That's We want to be on the farm. We want to be sort of producing or promoting um, and not driving. So um, we got our feet wet with uh, distribution to the Puget Sound Food Hub. That was a project that we were intimately involved with getting going in the Pacific Northwest here. Um, and then with the value-added products, I went with a smaller distributor who had a really nice lineup of specialty foods, and that, that's a company called Milepost 65. So we distribute through them to specialty shops. And then for the larger grocers that we're um, getting involved with, they want a larger, they kind of, well, they demand that you go with a larger distributor. I'm still trying to stay small and regional, but um, Crown Pacific is who I'm I'm going with for that. But these grocery stores, um, you know, they want to sell local. They they really do, and they want to be, um, you know, they want to talk about it. They want to offer it. But the reality is, is they can't deal with individual farmers. It's just too much work for them. It costs them too much money to just process an order it um, I've heard that it costs $30 to process one order so that's for us with the fresh fruit why the Puget Sound Food Hub worked out so well because they source directly from farms they don't take ownership of it and then it's an online buying system where grocery stores or chefs go on and make their order the farmer gets the order so we get an order like I'll use the Microsoft example so we get an order for a thousand pounds which that's a lot that that doesn't happen that much. <laughs> but so a thousand pounds of berries and we know that we have to get it. We drive it over to the Puget Sound Food Hub on a Tuesday and it gets delivered on a Wednesday to, to Microsoft. And so that works out really well. And then it's just one bill. And I don't have to do the invoice myself. It's all online an online process. So that's that's kind of the cool thing about that. When you're using a distributor, you know, you don't have to make all these individual invoices and make sure that they're all paid and call people to make sure that they've paid their invoice or call them to remind them to order. And so that's distributors do kind of earn their, their money. Right. And that's really what you're, you're kind of paying them to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But my, my first thought was institutional buyers would be good because I like the idea of, of large sales, but really now that we've been doing this a long time, we realize that more retail would be better. You know, you're going to, you're going to do better. So I'm at this point, I'm trying to promote people to come to our farm store and have the, the farm experience. So um, we have more retail sales and directing people to, um, to our online store. So, you know, like in the, during the holiday season, we have gift boxes and that helps uh, you know, just different revenue streams and keeping the the farm working all year all year round. And you know, and that all uh, that all stems from being able to freeze the blueberries right off of the harvest. 
And but we do other promotions too. So we just do local advertising as well. We have uh, Edible Seattle is a magazine we advertise in. Um, there's an art house theater, and we run a slide during that. And um, we have a great little agriculture newspaper in our Skagit and Whatcom County, and I run an ad in that. But um, mostly it's word of mouth and a lot of social media. You know, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And, you know, just telling our story and talking about our lifestyle and what it's like to live in um, Gadget Valley. And, you know, there's, it's so scenic. There's lots of pictures to put up. And so that, that works as well. But it's, it's ongoing. It's ongoing and constant, you know. Now, when you talk about your on-farm market, where are most of those people coming from? Are they driving up from Seattle? Or is, is it more folks that are in the Mount Vernon and Cedar Woolly areas, which are... And and I've been looking at a map of where you guys are. I mean, you're an hour and a half north of Seattle. Is that is that where folks are coming from? Or are you getting more of a local crowd? Well, we really, um, we have a, uh, an island that's closest to us called Samish Island. And um, we have a lot of customers on Samish Island. We have a lot of customers in Bellingham. And that's where we go to the farmer's market. And part of, you know, the farmer's market is promoting the farm store. And then Seattle, yeah, people like a day trip, and we're really fortunate that we're near a, this little town called Edison, and Edison is a foodie haven. It is a gorgeous little town. It's about six blocks wide, and it has the best food, and it's got real art, and it's got um, great little craft stores that um, all local artists. And it's, uh, people love it. People love coming for a day trip. So they come to Edison and they, they come to us and ice cream always draws people in. Oh, the other, the other thing I, I had to work really hard to get was, you know, those signs on the freeway that are, have businesses or tourist activities. Right. So I had to work, I worked with the state really, uh, for a couple of years to try to get, um, the farm on a, a highway sign. And I finally I finally got it, but there was a lot of um, pushback from that department that why, why would we promote you? You're just a store. And it was like, well, what, what's the difference between us and an antique store? I mean, you know, a store is just like, we have an experience and we can give a tour and we, this fresh food. And anyway, it was an ongoing conversation that we finally got and it basically, and you had to be open. You had to be open all year round, which we are, and you had to have certain hours to qualify. So anyway, through many rounds, we finally got that. And I don't know how much it's helped, but we got it. And it says, well, Hill Blueberries, it's our logo, and it says Organic Farm. And hopefully yeah, it will bring and it we have, And we have a walking tour. Um, Susan put together these storyboards that have the history of the farm, the original family, and pictures from their history here with blueberries. And they used to grow other things, strawberries and mink. And we do seasonally can put up a walking tour and she had the, the storyboards are framed behind the original windows from the Anderson's farmhouse that was here. And so it's, they get history. They can, you know, and this site we're at is drop dead gorgeous. Like, you know, that's, we see mountains and we're in the middle of the Valley. And uh, when you're picking, it's gorgeous. And it's when you're just dropping by to, in the winter even to pick up some juice or ice cream or some of the jam they're in a spot that's just really beautiful yeah we have trumpeter swans coming in the winter so it's there's a lot of birding that goes up in our area as well as hiking and biking and 
speaking and so it, there's the valley itself is a is a draw so that helps um the other thing one of the other things we do is a field dinner every year and that's really a special event um you've heard of the you know outstanding in the field and we do our own version of it uh, with a, a chef that we've become friends with who's uh one of the chefs that's won um on chopped and she's amazing with um her combinations and it's just a blowout dinner that is with wine pairings and it's really good and so and that's just we just do that once a year and it's uh, only like a 30 person seating but it's really a special event yeah we do it out in the blueberry field itself and actually during one of the courses last year during the dessert courses the the wait staff picked blueberries for the dish <laughs> while they're you know while right as it's being served and they would they would just yeah, be each, in the plants around them, you know. Yeah, each each, uh, each dish had a blueberry garnish to it, at least. If it wasn't made from blueberry, it had a little bit of blueberry with it. And so a full-up full up blueberry experience. And so we, we promote tours, too. Uh, whenever anybody wants a tour, like we've got Sagittarius to preserve farmland, brings in people from Seattle. And so a bus of 50 people will get off and we'll, you know, give them the the blueberry story and that's fun and we have uh japanese delegates that'll come and they'll have lunch as well and you know we tell them about you know basically the same things we've been telling you and yeah we just had a tour of german blueberry farmers come and tour for an hour and they came on a bus and then we do a blueberry camp every summer for kids so kids historically have always picked here most when we every day in the store during the summer somebody comes in to buy some fruit because i picked here as a kid this is how i bought my school clothes that's great. And because this was the blueberry farm in the valley and the, the Andersons would have a little flatbed truck that they would drive around town in the morning right after sunrise and kids would hop on and come to the to pick and get paid. And so we continued that. We had a blueberry crew where they actually kids got paid um, a, a couple of summers. And then we just actually integrated the kids now with the professional crew and they have a great experience. But we also yeah, run so a blueberry camp, which is free. And we did it for a week for at least one year, but now it's a one day camp and it'll be either one of the local boys and girls clubs or a camp group will come and they spend all day and they get some cooking information on healthy blueberry cooking and how to get away from boxed blueberry pancake recipes and how to make things from scratch. And they'll usually have an art project to do. And then they go out in the field and they get to harvest all they want to take with them. They just give it to them and they'll take it back to their program and freeze them and use them throughout the year. They are incredible. These kids come in and they pick incredibly well and have a great time. But we do. And if any kid wants to be a picker at our farm, you know, I will interview them and I'll tell them, you know, they'll, they'll go out with the professionals and they'll be treated like a professional. Um, you know, they have the kid rules. We always adhere to the kid rules. So, um, but um, they get to go out and pick. And not many of them last more than a week, but um, if they want to do it, they're they're welcome to. <laughs> yeah, and so we have a child or whatever it's called work permit for agricultural yeah, labor yeah. so that they can participate. It's really interesting to me that you guys have one crop, so in one way you're not a very diversified farm, but then you're you're marketing that a lot of different products and a lot of different ways that you're selling that product how do you guys decide 
how much you're going to put into blueberry vinegar and how much you're going to put into blueberry juice and how much you're going to put into fresh or frozen? That's, that's an ongoing process. Um, first of all, it's how much can we harvest of each variety? So the, the berries, the tiny berries that go into the pickle blueberries, we, we only get so many. So that's how many we can do. Um, and you don't know that till the end of the season. So it's always guesswork, right? But we do elaborate um, spreadsheets and enterprise budgets. And, uh, and I get help with that because that is not my first love. So really, we look at the numbers and we look and try to decide what is most profitable for us because you know, we need to be sustainable and keep these people employed and keep, you know, you know, make our mortgage payment and all that kind of good stuff. Um, so it's really a tracking, it's really a tracking thing. And then it's also like, where have we succeeded in sales? What sells the best? Like where a uh, pickled blueberry is a bit of an oddity. I mean, that's neat and it's special and it is delicious, but it's a little weird too. And so, you know, jam always sells. And so we know that, you know, people know what to do with jam. So we know how much goes into jam. And, um, and like I said, we have a limited variety for the pickled and I have to go to further reaches to, to sell the pickled. But the, right. and the frozen is we're taking reservations for frozen um, because again, that's very easy to sell, but um, it isn't, um, you know, the, we like to, we like to process as much as we can. So it's a, it's a balancing act, really. Right. We could sell the whole field frozen in little bags easily. And, uh, but it doesn't keep people working all year. You basically would be storing them and delivering them and that's it. And it doesn't give you the diversity um, in the product line. And so, and we, we do the amount of spreadsheets and planning and food safety computer work and all that and traceability that a very large, a 40, 80, 200 or a thousand acre farm would do. It's the exact same amount of time and paperwork. And so we'd be a really good study for a business like in a, a, a of how to trace things, how to do um, the enterprise budgets, the contributory margins and all these things. We track all that. Um, and we've gotten a lot of help to do it. Initially, with a small, the small business administration local, which is called, which is the economic development of Magic County, it kind of helped us for a few years build these business plans and spreadsheets. And the last two years, and now going into this year, the finance department at Western Washington University has adopted us to help do all kinds of budgeting and enterprise budgeting and projections. And they use this as a, you know, as a as a study module, um, and that's been a lot of benefit for us. So we have lots of data that helps us, particularly with pricing, so that you know you don't price something where you're actually losing money on it because you're not really taking into account everything. And so we get a lot of outside help, and the, everywhere I believe you know farmers should be taking advantage of that. And we tell farmers to do that that there's help out there for you to do these this planning and this budgeting so that you know whether you're actually making money and how to how to make the most of your opportunity um, to yeah. make a sustainable business out of your farm because five acres shouldn't be working but we're showing that it does right and the other the other advantage that we have too is that our our daughter is a trained graphic designer and so she does all of our branding and and label design and it's um it looks pretty great i have to <laughs> 
it does. It's a really nice, it's just so clean. I really like how clean it is. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it, very recognizable and it, it does have a nice heirloomy feel to it without, well, with a real focus on the blueberry. And I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Anybody that wants to go look at the logo can look at it, but it's just, a, it's a nice clean, um, it's really tight design and I like it. Yeah, yeah, and it was interesting to do that because we wanted to be look professional for one, so we could you know compete on the on the shelf with uh, bigger brands, but we also needed it to feel farming. So that was uh, you know it was a bit of a, a balancing act there to try to create something that looks like homegrown and small batch, but also professional. So uh, it was, I think we landed on something that is pretty good. Do you want to talk about your juice project, Harley? Yeah, so we decided, well, one of the things is we thought about, you know, we get a lot of fruit at the end of the year that, you know, typically juice fruit is the end of the year kind of soft things that can't be done, you can't use for other things. We dehydrate a lot of fruit, which can be used, that fruit can be used for. So I bought a small juice press, um, a bladder press type thing, and started just juicing some of the leftover fruit, and it was the most incredible tasting when it was just pure raw juice pouring out of this um, press. So we decided to let's start bottling juice. This is so incredible. So we're doing a really nice glass bottle that, that our daughter designed and um, it's a, 30, a 16 ounce and 32 ounce glass like Boston round bottle. And we got a USDA grant to help with that. And it is the only, we're using the heirloom fruit. So we have one variety that's a little bit modern. We tried pressing it. It was all kind of pulpy and not quite purple. So we press some of the heirloom fruit, the jerseys and the rubles, and it comes out purple, really dark, 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 and with a lot of clarity to it. So it doesn't have pulp in it. And it's very sweet, naturally sweet and intense. So the point where you can't drink more than a few shots of it and you're full. And so it's a really good, like we say, it's a really good mixer for bars or people who just want to take a shot or mix it with milk or do whatever. And so we pasteurize and bottle it here. We uh, juice must be pasteurized to sell uh, according to the F Food and Drug Administration rules, unless it's a juice, like a raw juice bar. So we had a real challenge finding scale appropriate equipment to both press and bottle and pasteurize. And we found a pasteurizer in Germany. It's a very small scale, looks like a very tall hot water tank um, that flash pasteurizes and bottles all in one little little unit. And so once a week we press, we thaw our frozen fruit and we press and bottle it and uh, pasteurize and flash pasteurize and bottle it. So we saw all of our production is very just in time. Like we, our back stock isn't very full. We sort of maintain what's selling right now and that's what we're making. But the juice is a very incredible product because it's heirloom fruit and it's pure juice, whereas what we're looking at on the shelves that say blueberry juice, a lot of times, as Susan said earlier, is really mostly apple juice or grape juice with some blueberry juice in it, or they're doing them from concentrates where they cook the blueberries down and then add water and sugar back into them. And it just doesn't have that sweetness, that pure, fresh sweetness that this stuff has. When we're done pressing, you get about 40% of the weight of the fruit is now uh, just a, a pulp or a cake, they call it. And we take that out of the press and we put that in our dehydrator that we dry our uh, blueberries in and then dry it down to about five or eight percent moisture. And then we blend it in a Vitamix, a little Vitamix blender and pack that both in eight ounce or much larger boxes for people to either buy as ingredients. And we have uh, a lot and we 
at first didn't know what people were going to do with it, but people sort of knew what to do with it. Do with it. So they, yeah. they're putting it in um, smoothies. They're making baked goods with them. It's really good in scones. They're adding in mixed drinks and throwing it on desserts and putting it with chocolates. We have a couple of chocolatiers that are putting it in things. And again, um, a mustard. That was the latest yeah. one. We have our mustards. Yeah, <laughs> mustards. And then we're putting it in, you know, I, well, the way I eat it is with steel cut oats and just stir it in. And um, you can pretty much put it in anything you're cooking. It's a high fibrous, nutritious, lots of antioxidant supplement. It helps with color and all that. So, and that's kind of this by making use of this byproduct. Um, which helps the sustainability of the whole process. And so hopefully the, the selling the powder can sort of cover some of the expenses of the juice because the juice is very expensive to make because of the printed glass bottle and the, the large oh. amount of fruit. Like our yeah. bottle says, each 16-ounce little bottle has 547 blueberries pressed into it. So <laughs> it takes a lot of fruit to make one bottle, and the, having that secondary use of the powder the, Pulp into powder, which is a great product on its own, helps mix the juice work financially. How have you guys differentiated yourselves in the market? I mean, obviously, to some degree with the products, like a pure blueberry juice, which you've said is something that just isn't out there otherwise. But, I mean, Western Washington, it feels to me like there's, you guys can't be the, well, you said earlier, you're not the only blueberry farm on the block. No, Washington is the largest grower of organic blueberries in the United States. Um, and they may be the largest grower of blueberries. I'm not quite sure of that. But they, um, the one thing, one of the things that differentiates is, is the small farm and the other is the heirloom. That we have fruit that other people don't have. Because well, most yeah. of those farms are, have modern fruit varieties. And they're, you know, and our customers are starting to know, particularly our U-Pick customers who get out there and taste each of the varieties, know that there is a difference between the heirloom fruit and the modern fruit. And so Susan's incorporated that in all the packaging, you know, the packaging, the brand names always say heirloom on them. Right. So that's a differentiator that the varieties that we have and that we're small, that makes us different. And that we uh, make all of our products on the farm. So that is also really different. So what, no um, co-packers are involved with, uh, with our products. Um, we do have an ice cream that is made by a local ice cream company, um, Lopez Island ice cream. And uh, we are trying a chocolate too. We don't make our own chocolate, but we have a chocolate covered blueberry that is colored with the, um, the blueberry powder. It's, it's purple. So it's an all organic ingredient, but we don't make that as well. Um, but that's a differentiator that we're small batch and that's for real. <laughs> um. All right. With that, I think it's time to turn to our lightning round. So we're going to get a quick word from a sponsor and then we'll be right back. This lightning round plus perennial support for the farmer to farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools that you need to get the jobs done across the farm and the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart, bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we simply couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. 
Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. So, Harley, what's your favorite tool on the farm? My favorite tool on the farm is this my blueberry weeder and my hand pruners, really. But uh, I have a little hand pruner that I like to use. But the really favorite thing that sort of saved this farm and helped it be organic is uh, my blueberry weeder mechanical cultivator. And is that the one from the Hillside Cultivator Company? Yep, it's from Hillside Cultivator in Pennsylvania. Great. And we'll include a link. Which I to didn't that know it was a blueberry growing <laughs> area, but they make a thing called the blueberry hillside cultivator. Yeah. And I think it, it all kind of works on the same, on that same principle, like you said, of being able to actually make those adjustments as you're going down the row. Yeah. It has a hydraulic because our road now, modern fruit fields are laid out with lasers. So every row is exactly the same. Perfect. Straight. But ours was laid out at different times by guys with, you know, probably a stick and some strings. And so the ability to adjust that as we go up and down the rows is dramatic. And all our rows, they range from nine feet to 10 feet and everything in between. And Susan, your favorite tool on the farm? My daughter, (laughs) 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 who does the the graphic design. (laughs) Yeah, does a lot of work. Well, we usually ask, what's your favorite crop to grow? But you guys might be the first people that we don't really need to ask. Yeah, it's interesting that we we are a mock crop. And that was one of the attractions for me with this farm is like, I would know how to work with a blueberry and, and berries in general, we love berries. So, but that was attractive to me. It was to be able to focus and really do everything you could with one crop. Maybe that's not a popular thought, but it, that's what was attractive to me. Yeah. And I'm glad, I'm glad that our crop is blueberries. I grew up loving wild berries, like everybody picking wild berries in the woods. And before we owned the blueberry farm, I would hike in the woods with each season in the progress. Like my year was marked by when are the thimbleberries, when are the huckleberries, when are the blackberries, when are the salmonberries. And our, well, I would carry our son in the backpack and he would pick as I picked um, those things. And I read lots of Henry David Thoreau growing up and he writes a lot, you know, about huckleberries and wild berries. And so uh, it's easy to be passionate about blueberries. And Susan, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Well, um, that this truly would be a full-time job. Um, that there wouldn't, I didn't, I had no idea how much time it would take if I could do my former career at the same time. I thought maybe I could, but there's just no way. <laughs> so uh, I guess that you will be eating and breathing this um, seven days a week for the next, I don't know, 10 years. We thought it was a three-year project to, you know, we would take this farm organic and then we would move on to another idea, but it's really become our lives. And Harley, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Yeah, I also, I agree with Susan on this and that, that, um, it's going to be 18 hours a day, seven days a week, 12 months of the year. Um, so get ready for that. And the, the fortunate thing about that is I got no problem with it. I had a job before also that where I thought I worked really hard. I worked intensely hard every day and lived it forever. Never, you know, there was no day off. And this is more work than that. But I'm also sitting in the most beautiful spot that I can think in the world every day um, in the location where we're at. And so it's, 
I have no problem with that. If I had thought that I was going to work this hard with no days off, um, I wouldn't have believed it uh, and enjoyed it this much. So that's really what I've learned is that I could work this hard when I thought I'd sort of semi-retired and really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. And for me, it's the creativity of it because I was in a creative field before and I would have thought giving that up to be a farmer would not be as satisfying. Um, but again, because of the area we're in, it's so much, uh, there's so much beauty here that that satisfies that portion. And just being a small business owner is so much more creative than I ever expected. Yeah. And I would have never, ever believed, and I guess every new farmer needs to get on board with the fact that you're going to have a lot of numbers to deal with and a lot of spreadsheets. I never did that in my life. I was an employee, so I didn't have to deal with how things worked financially. And that's the big thing to get prepped for and get ready for is that it's going to be a lot of numbers and a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of planning, you know, at night and on the weekends and when it's raining. And uh, that's not something that you, you consider when you're looking at the idealism of being a farmer. Susan and Harley, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. All right. So wrapping these up here, I'll say again that this is episode 115 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Soltis. That's S-O-L-T-E-S. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Those show notes include links to the resources and tools mentioned during this episode. Also, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to the farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the track running.